Welcome to a night of total terror. <laughs> when was the last time you were scared out of your wits? Welcome back to another episode of It Came From Queens. Thanks for tuning in to The Static again this morning. It is early ass o'clock. I'm Benjamin Falbo. And uh, today it's, uh, it's a really special time because we actually have another very interesting and very unique uh, person in the creative fields with us today. The mission statement of the show uh, has been for a while now to give exposure to unique, diverse, and off the beaten path, creative individuals, and this one definitely satisfies that criteria. You might have seen his work on the uh, marketing for the film Tusk a few years ago. He's the uh, owner and operator of Flush, uh, Flush Studios Film and Animation. You can find his latest film out on Amazon Prime and Troma Now, The Good Exorcist. And if you pledge to his Patreon right now, you can see the screener for his upcoming feature, Greywood's Plot. We're going to talk about all of that here today. He is my uh, guest today. He's Josh Stifter. How you doing, sir? Hey, man. How's it going? I'm doing well, well stuck inside, obviously, like the yeah. rest of the goddamn world. But other than that, happy to be talking with you here today. So I guess the first obvious question to ask out of the gate is a very rudimentary one. But in a sense, explain to the people at home who you are and what you do on like a, on like a log line pitch level. Like, who are you and what, what do you do? Yeah, so I'm Josh Stifter, and I'm an animator filmmaker. That's like the easiest. It's been so challenging to figure out like how to um, label myself because that you don't you never feel like a filmmaker. Even I've made two features. I'm working on my third. I've made a hundred shorts, a bunch of animation. I never like it's hard to say I'm a filmmaker, yeah. but I am. And uh, so that that's like the easiest way to say it. But I'm I, I am I like the fact that you say off the beaten path because I always there was a moment where I had to make this decision like this, you know, I have a family, I have all this other stuff. I had to make this decision of whether I wanted to get into the film industry or if I wanted to continue to do things the way I'd been doing them. And this is like a recent thing that I had to think about over the last couple of years. And it just like clicked in my brain that I'll, I'll never be happy just being in the industry. For me, it's always been about the telling the story, making my own thing. And that means, you know, compromising and going off the beaten path and doing, I, I like to say it's like the, uh, I make like the, the garage band of films. Like I'm the, I'm the dude that you'd see across the street playing in his garage with a couple of buddies and you'd be like, oh, this is cool. It's not like, it, it's, it's just that punk rock DIY style of filmmaking. And I've always loved that, that kind of art. So that's the sort of that's kind of my mentality with filmmaking. I'm like, a, I try to be like the punk rock garage band filmmaker. That's really cool. I try to like have a, uh, I try to maintain that same kind of spirit with a lot of the stuff I do as well. So I understand exactly where you're coming from. Uh, my next question would be everyone definitely, me included, has a film that kind of sparked their passion for filmmaking, maybe a show, maybe a film, something that 
kind of showed you, hey, maybe I can do this. So what was that movie for you and when did it come into your life? There's been a couple of those. I think the biggest one I can go back to, and this was like a huge, uh, there's like a pivotal moment in my life where I, you know how they do like that bring your kid to work day? Yeah. My, my dad brought me to work and this was in the early days of the internet. The early, the internet was just like, it existed. Everyone knew about it, but not everyone had internet in their home. It wasn't the norm. And his work had the internet. So he brought me to work for bring your kid to work day and sat me down at the computer. And he was like, Hey, have fun on the internet, boy. I was probably like seven, eight, something like that. Um, so I went, I, first thing I started searching was cartoons and this, this animation came up. It was Joe cartoon was the guy who had made it. It was a frog in a blender. That was like the cartoon where the, the animation was just, you could click these buttons. It was like an old flash animation and you could click these buttons and then the, this frog would spin in a blender and then it would slowly, like it would yell at you. It'd be like, the, the frog would be like, hey man, stop it. And then, you know, it'd be like, this doesn't even hurt. And then eventually it'd start getting faster and faster and faster and then he explodes into a bunch of blood. Um, so Joe Cartoon made this, made this animation. It was amazing. And that was like the first time I was like, oh, you can do this. Like I was, you know, grade school kid just going like, that's what I want to do. I want to make the cartoons. In the past, it had been like on television was the only place I could see it. And, you know, it just didn't, you'd see the credits at the end of The Simpsons and it was a thousand, it was, it looked like a thousand people. It was going so fast on TV and you're like, holy shit, that's a lot of people. Like people actually make this. Like people sit down with a pencil and paper and like work this out like frame by frame. <laughs> Totally. That, and that, and you could see it. It was all on like threes. Like the animation was super simple and like just, it was, it felt like one guy made it and it was called Joe cartoon. So I was like, one guy did this. And it turns out one guy did do that. And I became good friends with him. He actually has a song, a folk song that's featured in the good exorcist. So, um, yeah, so that animation was like the first, but then there was, you know, I remember, laying in bed when I graduated high school and having that moment where you have to go like, oh, I gotta, I, I gotta be someone now. Like, I can't just, I can't just like sit around and watch movies. I gotta figure out if I wanna do something for a living. And it was like maybe a month after I graduated and I had just been, you know, I got a job working at a, at a, um, a car dealership, changing oil and shit like that. And I was sitting there and I'm like, oh my God, I, I have to become an adult now. And I looked up and I had a fight club poster on my wall. And I was like, okay, first step, I need to make a movie that some kid will put their, my poster up on their wall. If I can do that, I've succeeded. Like that's the first step. And like that simple moment of seeing fight club poster and being like, okay, fight club. That's what I want to do. I want to make movies that make people go, I want to put that on my wall. I, I care that much. Um, so Fight Club was like definitely a big one in that sense too. But I, the, the one that's always sort of stuck out to me as being the inspiration was Beetlejuice. It was fun. It was, you know, gross. It was weird, but it was never like mean-spirited. There was something, I love mean-spirited horror. Don't get me wrong. Stuff like Texas Chainsaw, Evil Dead. Like that stuff is great. I love it. But I just remember watching Beetlejuice and being like, I like this fun. I like allowing people to just sit back and watch something and be entertained. But I also, it made me think about family and it made me think about, you know, the importance of your life and living in the moment and, you know, all that stuff. So like 
there, it's just something about that movie that hit me hard. That actually is a good way to segue into like sort of the part two to that question. Like what's a movie that if you ever catch it on TV, like regardless of whether or not it's your favorite film, what's a movie where you catch it on TV, you absolutely just have to stop what you're doing and watch it. What's that, good, what's that movie for you? Goodwill Hunting. Goodwill Hunting is the weirdest movie because I would never be like, I love Goodwill Hunting. It's my favorite movie. But the second I'm like flipping through the channels or like, you know, someone, I, I, it just randomly will be else and it's like, oh, Goodwill Hunting's on. Let's watch Goodwill Hunting. It's like the most popcorn drama possible. Like it's so simple, but it's also funny. And you just watch Robin Williams like slay like he always does. But then you have that moment with your parents where you're like, you never watch that movie and you're like, oh, you're <laughs> I, I love that, that television moment of Goodwill Hunting. Actually, you know what? I'll say almost any Robin Williams movie. It's just like if a Robin Williams movie is on, just chuck it on and watch it. Of course. All right, follow up to that. Now, when it comes to your animated work, from my perspective at least, it has a very kind of adult swim, almost trauma quality to it, I would best describe it. And I will say, I just watched, when I was doing a deep dive on your content for fair for this, I watched Minnow. It's, yeah. It's so, it's hilarious, but it makes me weirdly sad by the end of it. I'm so, it's, he finally gets to see the sun. It's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, that was a fun one because like it started as a drunk conversation. That whole short started as just me and my buddy Ryan back in hanging out. And we were like, you know, it'd be a messed up cartoon. What if humans were minnows? Like that was it. That was the idea. Just of this like, isn't it weird when we're out fishing and you have to like stab a thing through its face and then throw it out? Like how messed up would that be? And their whole uh, life is in a bucket. <laughs> their whole life is in a bucket. And then you go, from, you go from being born to being thrown in a bucket to having a thing. I was just like, that's such a sad existence. I mean, and when you think about a lot of animals, like think about a fly, the existence of a fly, which is a huge part of Greywood's plot, like in the background, I have this like, there's this weird thing about flies and how nasty and unfresh they are. And the fact that they're born maggots, they become a fly and then they die within like, a couple days. That's their existence as a fly. So Minnow was sort of this idea. And I remember when I was a kid, did you ever see Liquid TV yes. on MTV? Like Liquid Television was my jam. It was like uh, Ian Flux and The Head and stuff like that. These weird cartoons that were like, Ian Flux was weirdly sad and dark and action-packed and like- he died. He died yeah, at she, the end of every single short. <laughs> She died in every episode and you were left with this like, or in, in the shorts. And then in the show, it always ended on this like sour, weird note. Not necessarily that she died, but just like, oh, this is so disgusting. And I loved that. So I wanted to kind of like modernize that idea and do something with that sort of liquid television vibe, um, you know, or, or trauma, having this weird comicalness to it where you kind of are laughing. You're like, ha ha, oh, he's a minnow. Ah, the, they're taking pictures of him. And, but you're also like, oh man, he's sad. But he's also, I, I did, one of the things that I really wanted to hit with minnow was this sort of metaphorical vibe of even when things are garbage and your life is shit, 
look for that little thing that can just give you a little bit of happiness, even if it's just looking up at the sun for a moment, like something. I just, that was sort of the- And then you get eaten by a bird. <laughs> and then you get eaten by a bird. And that's sort of the, hey, we all, we all die in the end. I liked seeing the circle of his life from bucket to death. <laughs> <laughs> No, no, that that was metal, and I love that. So, <laughs> good segue. We're going to segue from the animation into the filmmaking. So, the first taste of your work that I ever uh, was exposed to was a promotional cartoon you made for Kevin Smith's Tusk about six years ago. So, how did you end up on Kevin's radar? How did you find out about Tusk, and how did that little collaboration come together? Yeah, so I actually worked for Kevin for about a year before Tusk. I was doing. Um, he, had, he has this podcast called Smodcast and he randomly had asked people to send in animations of Batman versus Darth Vader. I don't remember why this was 10 years ago at this point and it was just a silly thing. And at the time I was working overnight. So I had, I worked four days on and three days I had off and those three days I would just animate all the time. So this popped up like on the, on my radar right at the perfect time. And I'm like, well, I'll take these three nights that I have. I never, did anything besides animate uh, I think I, I don't even think my kid was born yet Not, maybe I don't remember no he wasn't he wasn't born yet and I um so I, I didn't really have anything to do at nights when I was on my weekend so I animated took three days and animated this Batman versus Darth Vader cartoon and Kevin liked it and gave me a job and he, he was like a contest and I think I got like second or third place and then he, I got a call and they were like, hey, man, we want you to animate Smodcast like animations. So I did that for a while and they went up on YouTube and then they went on to DVD and stuff like that. And um, that was fun. And it was sort of like a side the hustle I could do while I was working my job full time. Still, it didn't pay enough to really, you know, provide, but it was enough to kind of, you know, buy some equipment and start building up my film company. And um then it just sort of turned into Kevin was working on this horror movie and I was sort of the go-to horror. I would take the, like the creepier moments in Smodcast and I would do those as cartoons. So they were, when that came up, they were like, Hey, do you want to animate this scene from Tusk? And I did. And I did, I animated an entire sequence in Tusk that ended up being deleted from the movie and is in the deleted scene, or it's like in the bonus content on the Blu-ray. It's a scene that I'm really proud of, but um, it's sort of this weird silhouette animation that uh, ended up getting cut because Michael Parks' performance was so good. They were like, well, we can't show the animation. We got to show Parks. And that's totally fine. They, there was actually two animations originally, and both of them got cut. Um, but then they messaged me uh, while we were in the process, and they're like, hey, we want to take that Smodcast animation and turn it into a promo piece where we animate the, the actual podcast. Would you be willing to do that? I was like, of course. That sounds amazing. So I animated the podcast, and that went out on it was on a bunch of different websites and they kind of like sent it out for a bunch of stuff. Um, and that, I'm still really proud of that animation too. That was one of the first times that I really got, um, I really took the time to learn certain animation techniques. The other times I just kind of been like, go in, just get it done. But uh, Jay Muse directed it and Jay Muse and I kind of talked about how we could make it look cool and really make that animation something that would pop for different content so it'd be on the blu-ray but it could also be given to you know hollywood reporter or whatever to use in their little promo pieces and it played on a bunch of different indie or a bunch of different um, film websites and uh so then from there yeah i just i, I worked on tusk and 
and that was the first time I, at that same time, a tree fell on my truck. And I took that, I took that insurance money and I took the, the Tusk money. And that was when I started my business. So I had a little chunk of money from both of those. And I was like, you know what? I'm finally going to start my business. And I bought a new computer, bought a new Cintiq, like a big Cintiq that I could draw right on the monitor and a bunch of other stuff that could speed up my animation. And that's the, a tree falling on my truck and Tusk made Flush Studios. <laughs> Now, while we're talking about Tusk, the uh, I have a I have a couple of questions about Greywood's plot later on, but they're very spoiler heavy, so I'm going to put that behind a spoiler warning later, since that you're sure. newest flick. But I have one question in relation to both of them. Now, there's a particular uh, creature design that is revealed near the end of Greywood's plot, and uh, by looking at it in black and white and in color. I couldn't help but notice that it vaguely resembles a wal a certain walrus monster from another movie, and I'm wondering if that was a little bit intentional. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. So Tusk was this. Um, yeah, Tusk was this moment where I. It was a movie that really inspired me. Working on it, seeing how it all came together, I was like, okay. I had this idea way back in the day for doing a sort of werewolfy movie, but instead of a werewolf, it was like a Spider-Man and this dude became like this messed up spider. And I'm like, well, what if I took that concept and turned it into this sort of Frankenstein thing? And then it, the story of Tusk, I love the movie, but I had these, this like personal connection to something that I didn't feel in it where I was like, man, I really want to know more about the friendship between um, Justin's character and the other character uh, and, and so I sort of started writing this idea and then originally I was going to do a spider it was still going to be a spider-man and so I did like storyboards we went out in the woods and filmed it and like and failed miserably at it whatever but the then we came back to it later and rewrote the script and really figured out what we wanted to be but there was definitely like an inspiration between Kevin making Tosk, trying something way outside of his normal type of movie, me wanting to try something different and hearing Kevin say many, many times, if you see something in my movies that you don't like, you know, especially calling out haters, not that I was a hater, but calling out haters and being like, hey, if you don't like it, go do it better. Like, if you don't like something that I did, go, go do it. And I was like, you know what? I, I don't want to say I'm doing it better, but I need to do it my way. So, uh, one of the reasons I made it black and white was, you know, kind of a reference to Clerks and that early filmmaking of Kevin and also Universal Monsters. I'm just a huge Universal Monsters fan. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go black and white with it. Plus, we filmed, we filmed a bunch of stuff like three years before. So we tried to make Grey Woods three years ago and failed at it and then came back to it last year when after we had done The Good Exorcist, and we're like, oh, let's try it again. Let's see if we can make Grey Woods plot something. And we wanted to continue to use some of that footage that we had filmed from three years ago, but Daniel and I both had kids. We started to look more like dads. We're getting older, and there was like an obvious change from three years ago us and us now. But there's still some footage in there, and I would I would love to hear if people could find shots that were from three years ago or shots that are from now um the best part was daniel had shaved his head three years ago and then was forced to shave his head again and his wife was so pissed that he had to shave his head again um but yes long that was a long answer to a short question i was crazy influenced by tusk for that movie 
And that's, we'll definitely dig, dive more into that later on when we talk about Greywood's plot spoilers. So uh, one of the things, uh, as I told you before we hit record, uh, one of the, you're currently uh, smack dab in the middle of production of Scumbag, which is sort of your, your, just your man with a camera movie that you are making completely on your own. Well, aside, I've seen that your kids are doing social, are, are trying their best to do social media pictures, but uh, yes. <laughs> this uh, social distancing oh. education is not going well. As you oh, the, the three-year-old picked up the camera and just started snapping photos, and I'm like, oh, Lord, like, this is what I'm going to get. But it'll make for some fun stuff for behind the scenes. The crappy pictures will, will show what I have to deal with while I'm also trying to film. But the seven-year-old is doing great. He actually took the photos for... The poster, um, there's a poster that's like me with an axe and some blood and whatever. That poster, my seven-year-old took that picture, and he's been taking some other photos as well. So it's been, it's been educational for them, and it's been a good way for me to uh, think outside of the box. Nice. So since we're on the subject, let's talk about Scumbag. Now, you, you, the, uh, the, you, this was your brainchild a while ago, but as you told me, this uh you wrote it before this is about a guy who is stuck indoors because of because of an outbreak going on outside in the world and this l i got you and you wrote this before the covid19 coronavirus outbreak so did that would you say oh this is a few questions do you feel it'll be received differently now than if you released it say a year ago or six months ago? Or do you feel now is the perfect time that America needs a film like this? So it's really interesting because basically what happened was I was on the show Rebel Without a Crew where I had to make a movie, you know, with $7,000 Robert Rodriguez gave me. I had 14 days to film it and, um, you know, I got to bring a friend with and stuff like that. But there was always this thing in the back of my brain the entire time I filmed it where I was like, well, your cast becomes your crew. So you're not really crewless. And then like with Greywood's plot, I was working with three of my friends. It was just the four of us basically made this movie by ourselves and they weren't a crew. But by the time we finished, we had, we talked better and worked better than any crew I've ever worked with. Like the way we could communicate because we were friends, because we knew how to have conversation with each other and how to, you know, keep it quick and move along. So I had this idea while I was on Greywood's plot where I was like, I should try to make a movie literally by myself. Setting up, I did a short film called um, Stalking, S-T-O-C-K-I-N-G, like a Christmas stocking. And I had filmed that entirely by myself. My wife helped with a couple shots, but I mostly filmed by myself. And I was always like, could I turn that concept into a feature? Could I make stalking into a feature? And so I sat down and I, uh, I started writing out ideas. And the obvious idea is like, well, if you're going to be doing it alone, you'd be in a bunker. Like, it just made sense to me. It was like, have you seen that Ryan Reynolds movie, Buried? Yes. I was like, how could I do Buried except in a bigger space so I have more room to move? And I was like, okay, it's Buried. It's in a bunker. And it's last man on earth. It's that concept because I'm the only actor who can be in it. So I have to find a way to make it by myself. Um, there's a lot of other characters and I, I don't want to spoil too much about scumbag yet, unless you want to join the Patreon, you can actually read the, the vomit draft script that I wrote back in September. Um, 
it's crazy how much it like the movie is what's happening like there are moments where there are jokes there's a there's toilet paper jokes he makes references to the fact that toilet paper ran out before everything else he and he's like he there's like a joke where he it's his birthday and he tears off his one little piece to wipe with and then he's like uh, I'll splurge and then rips off a second, you know, like that sort of like mentality. And then there's like elements of him. When we first see him, there's a, th- there's a, um, a, what do you call it? A flashback to before he was in the gas mask in the bunk, in the bunker, but I didn't want to reveal the face. So I had him in one of those little white masks. Like everyone is wearing the, the classic, you know, COVID mask at this point. And so, uh, and his, I don't want to, I don't know how much I want to spoil a scumbag. I'll just say his significant other is there. You don't see his significant other, but they throw the masks, like the bag of masks down on the floor and walk away. So that the mask became a big piece of this movie and was actually, I was planning on using it in the um, promotional art once this is start, gets going. But that mask now is the COVID mask. Like everyone is using that. You see, you can't turn on the news without seeing the COVID mask. Exactly. And, uh, so that's a huge so yeah there was things like that and there's even more emotional elements that i'm seeing happening now people being alone and the way they communicate that were written into it things that he writes in his diary that reference things that are happening now where i'm like holy shit i cannot believe how close this is to what is actually happening now so far we don't have mutants and we don't have you know yet weird yeah we don't have mutants yet we don't have little worm monsters yeah so um but yeah so it, i my hope is that the story can get out that i actually wrote this before and when this happened i had written this whole concept as a movie i was going to make by myself and then a month ago daniel read the script and daniel who plays father gill and doug graywoods and is my best friend and also my producers on my movies i sent him the script and he was just like man don't do this by yourself it's so good and it's so fun and so different than what i expected it to be you you can do your solo movie yourself later i want to work on scumbag and i was like ah fuck so i set it aside i didn't work on it this is a movie that i had grown my fingernails out like two inches for and grown my hair out and cut my own hair and clip my nails for the first scene because i had started the movie and and that's like the opening sequence and daniel was just like dude please don't do it i know you grew your nails out we can give you fake nails we can do it again just you know let's do this together and then covid happened and daniel i messaged daniel i'm like hey man should i and he's like yeah just do it just do just it go for it dude you have to he's should like I? yes yeah and he's like do it and do it fast because you need to have it out like when this is over when people are talking about wow that was fucked up wasn't it you got to be the one who's like, yeah, but it could have been more fucked up. Check out my movie I made while I was in my fucking house by myself. That's what I'm worried about. It's just like everyone and their mother is going to have like a quarantine movie or an outbreak movie or something ready to go. So I, I'm, I'm thankful that you have a vision that I'm assuming is very, very, as I said before, very off the beaten path and very, very out of left field for a situation like this. And I think mine has the, what, what Scumbag has and why I feel like really connected to doing it right now is the fact that it isn't based on COVID. Like it's a outsider's perspective on it unintentionally. So while there's going to be inspiration and influence based on the fact that this is happening, 
like obviously it's going to work its way into it as I film. There's going to be emotional beats I maybe wouldn't have hit based on what we're going through. But the entire concept is not COVID related. So I think it's going to have something different than everyone else who is being retrospective about it is. So hopefully there's a different story there to tell. Excellent. You mentioned while you were talking about this, you mentioned obviously Rebel Without a Crew and Robert Rodriguez. And I have to ask, how, how important would you say Robert Rodriguez is within independent cinema and your development as a creative artist? Oh my God. Well, those are two very, very different questions that both play almost exactly the same because Robert Rodriguez, that book was my Bible. Rebel Without a Crew is like, the, I, I read it literally as much as my grandmother read the Bible. Like, it's crazy. I read it on the bus. I, like, when I was working full-time, I would read it on the bus every day, so much so that a guy walked up to me and was like, hey, man, what is this book you're reading always? Like, you are obsessed with it. You just keep starting it over. My copy is all worn and stuff like that. And so Robert, like, that it was crazy influential even before I actually met the man, like, way before I w was involved with it. So I think he, making El Mariachi, proving that if, you ha if there's a will, there's a way. Now, you know, a lot of people will be like, you know, he, he shot it on film or $7,000 isn't what it was back then or whatever argument you want to make about, you know, the, the big argument now is Sundance isn't accepting independent movies. They want movies with actors and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, it's great. But now you have YouTube. You have other ways to get it out there. Be, what if you were the one who makes something that you post on YouTube and it gets a billion views? Like it becomes something that everyone watched. Now, that hasn't happened and I'm not saying it's going to, but there's something outside of the box that will always be happening. Every, every five, every 10 years, someone pops in an independent way. You just got to find what that way is for you. And that's what Robert's independent spirit taught me and, and a lot of other people. Personally, Robert, I mean, he, he helped me make my first feature. The dude has given me work. He's been crazy inspirational and influential just in as much as being like, hey, man, love, your, like, love the movie. This is what you did really well. This is what I would do. Like, just as a teacher and a mentor, he's been super, super helpful. Um, and also, you know, he let me stand on the set of his his. 700 or his seven million dollar set for alita in his 200 million dollar movie where i just was like oh this is possible like there was a moment that i had where i just went oh he started making his little independent movies and now he's making this huge monster of a film it's possible he's just a dude like he's just a dude like like a director a filmmaker like any any chick out there, any guy out there, you want to go make a $200 million movie, you have to start from nothing. Yep. That really is the case. Like I love, I've always, I've always maintained that artists always do their best work under massive constraints. And when their back is against the wall and turn taking nothing and turning it into something, you have like the guys who made creep. They literally just went out into the woods with a camera and just came back with a movie. That's, that's Creep was the reason why I first went and tried to go make Grey Woods. I saw Creep and Baghead, and I was just like, you know what? These are awesome, and we'll never be able to make something this good, but what if we just go and try? And, man, we sucked. Oh, it was awful. Oh, the original Grey Woods stuff that we got, it's just, 
it looked great, some of it, and it was fine, but it just, we didn't have the, the time put into it. We didn't have the hours of making a feature. Like we had note cards and understood the story structure and knew what we wanted to get, which didn't really change that much from what Greywoods ended up becoming. Like, like general broad stroke act structure and the idea, the concept of friendship and whatever. But the bigger picture of it all, like no one would have watched our movie and been like, hey, I really liked it. People would have been like, oh, you did it. You did a thing. Good, good. <laughs> you, you done. This is, you, do, you done did it, buddy. Good, good for you. I really liked that shot of the sun. That was really nice. You can always tell when, when your movie sucked or when someone doesn't like it, when they point out a specific like thing, like when they're like, I really liked the, the, the hair, like your hair looked good in that, in that one scene. They're like, oh, okay, you didn't give a shit about my movie. <laughs> uh, you didn't, but you didn't give, there's a toilet flushing in the background. That's what, that's probably what they would have thought. <laughs> yep, exactly. Just a toilet flush. No, like I've had experiences like that. Believe me. You mentioned Rebel Without a Crew before. How exactly did that come together? Was it all, was it, did you have to submit? Did he reach out to you? Did El Ray reach out to you? How did that whole come, to, how did that whole thing come together? I did an animation um, based on working with Kevin. I met this dude, his name's Josh Roush, and he was Michael Parks's assistant on Tusk. And, and I think maybe Red State as well, but I'm not sure. But anyway, he reached out to me and was like, hey, man, I saw your animation, loved it. I've had this idea for a cartoon that's really fucked up, but I've never had anyone who wants to do it. Would you be willing to do it? And we could get Michael to do a voice. So I was like, yeah, that'd be great. That sounds awesome. Let's do it. And it's, this, it's called uh, Other Fish, and you can see it online. It's this really weird, artsy piece that I really love, but it's just really, really dark. It's like yeah, Minnow. You it's, have a thing for fish-related narratives. <laughs> I, I have a thing for, yeah, I have a thing for water creatures. I mean, Chum as well was a water monster. I really like, I, I'm a big fan of Creature from the Black Lagoon. So I, I've always wanted to do like, my, at some point I'll do a water monster feature. It will happen. It just, it's a challenge to make something on the water, especially like in Minnesota where everyone's fishing and boating and out on the lakes so it's hard to find a lake that you're not going to be interrupted on plus it's just technically it's hard to get lights out by water and all that sort of stuff so anyway he contacted me and was like hey we i got let's do this cartoon so we did it we made it and then michael parks passed away and i had basically michael's last work so i contacted el ray and i was like hey i don't know if you guys would want to do anything with this but this is mike the last thing michael parks was actually in before he passed and i feel like it's an important piece because of that not just because i made it like i wasn't trying to be like hey check out my thing but i'm like hey this is michael's last thing i don't know if you'd be interested and they were like hey we love it this is way too dark to use on el ray network like this is way too weird we have no way to use it we love it but we really love your little cartoon tim the terrible would you be willing to sell that to us to put on our People's Network Showcase? And I was like, totally. Yeah, I would love to. And they're like, hey, we want to fly you out to LA, put you on the show, introducing the cartoon. And then it was like a, a show where they like showcased short films. So I went out there. And while I was there, I was talking to the showrunner of that show about how much I love Rebel Without a Crew, the book. In fact, so much so that I literally had the copy on me so I could read on the plane. I was like, dude, I look at my copy. I love this book so much and he's like hey uh we're talking about doing the show 
have could you do a cartoon in a cartoon feature in two weeks with i was like no of course not this little tim the terrible took me like five months like it it's hard animating but i've done short films before uh live action short films this one I did by myself and I showed them stocking and they're like, oh man, you're perfect for the show. Make sure to submit when it starts up. So I submitted like everyone else did and apparently I stuck out. And I, you can see uh, on my Patreon, I posted what I sent them. I sent them like a synopsis for characters. I actually show it. I did a YouTube video um, called, it's called Don't Blink. It's at the, the Flush Studios YouTube. Um, and it's a series on the making of The Good Exorcist from my perspective, not the like reality show. Like very like, getting down to like how I wrote it, how we filmed, how I worked with the actors, a much more technical look at filmmaking um, of The Good Exorcist. And on there you can see like the poster that I sent them that I took a picture before work one day. I sent it, I submitted, like I, I put this thing together in about like, I don't know, a handful of hours and then I sent it off to them and I somehow got on the show. They had us fill out these like questionnaires and I remember that really vividly because I was like, I don't know if I should answer this seriously because they already kind of know me or answer with like stupid answers. So I just went crazy with the stupid answers. And apparently that stood out. Like one of the, one of the questions, I don't remember what most of them were, but one of them was like, what's your spirit animal or what animal do you relate to? Um, and I said beaver because I work hard and say damn a lot. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I, I just want to get the job done and say damn. These are, the, these are the choices that separate the boys from the men. These are the decisions that separate artists from the rest, all right? Yeah, so I just went for it, and somehow it got me on the show. Not, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And that led to, of course, The Good Exorcist, which is going to be a big thing we're talking about right now. So obviously, came together in two weeks, seven thousand dollars, like back against the wall. Got to get, got to. It's not a matter of, hey, I'll get, I'll finish this when I can. No, I have to finish this. Like, right? I'm like contractually obligated to do so. So I'd have to say was, what were the key influences for the Good Exorcist? Were there any, or was it just, or was it just, I need a film concept. I've had this idea for a while now, and this is what I'm going to go with. Like, how did that all come together? What is all, was it all a matter of necessity or was it just, oh, I've wanted to do this anyway. This is the perfect opportunity to do, to do so. It was 100% based on necessity because, uh, so, so when I found out about the show, Daniel and I, I sent Daniel a message and I'm like, Hey man, do you want to be my plus one on this thing and come along and act in it? Cause I didn't know if we were going to get actors. I didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't like tell us anything. It was just like, Hey, you're going to come to Austin and you're going to make a movie. And so I was like, you want to star in it and I'll, we'll write it together. I'll direct it. We'll do this thing. He was like, yeah, that sounds great. What is it about? Like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, we could make you, we, we need something that you don't have to change costume a lot because that's going to be the, one of the toughest things is keeping consistency as we're filming this. So I was like, you've got to either be a clown. And he's like, oh, I don't want to put on clown makeup every day. And then I was like, well, you've got your wedding suit. We could make you a priest. So that's Daniel's. Daniel's priest costume is just his wedding suit that he had. And then we got a little collar. We, 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 I think we got him like a $5 shirt at the store that had like a tighter collar on it like a black shirt and then we just put like a piece of paper in there for the collar <laughs> that whole time it's just a white piece of like cardstock paper 
<laughs> no one's gonna notice. Fuck no. it. No one's ever said, no one's ever been like, that's not a real collar. That's a piece of paper. But you see him pull it out at one point. Like he pulls it out and it's like obviously a piece of paper. Those, the, the, the like clerical collar or whatever it is called is like usually a piece of fabric. It's like stiff. It's just a piece of cardboard. <laughs> having watched that movie, having watched the film in full, having thoroughly enjoyed it, I have to say that strikes me as something that Father Gill would actually do quite oh, yeah. often. <laughs> true i know that's the beauty of it like we just leaned into how weird and he like we had this thing in the back of our head the whole time that father gill doesn't actually believe in god like he only <laughs> believes in demons so everything he does as a priest is like so half-assed <laughs> like as a priest he's kind of half half-assed but as like a traveling demon exterminator he's weirdly good at it exactly yeah i love that about the, father gill the running good the running gag i love about father gill and like your your dude plays it so fucking good he plays it so so good i love how he'll keep describing all the horrible shit that he's seen. And he's clearly, he's clearly not lying about it because why would he need to? But he's just so nonchalant and like casual about it now. It's like someone who's done something so many times. It's like, oh yeah, he ripped their guts in half and guts were pouring out of his mouth. But yeah, just Tuesday. And the rest of the family's like, wait, what the fuck? We could die. And that, that, idea of him telling those stories is based on some of the older filmmakers that I've talked to who tell these like terrible stories of filmmaking like every every film set has its moments where shit falls apart and everything goes wrong and they'll tell the story and they'll be like oh yeah my lead actor walked off three days before the movie was supposed to be done and we had to recast and we just had to shoot around the way it looked I'm like that, that's a terrifying story like that's awful and they just tell it like it was nothing one so, of my, one of my favorite, I loved where Kevin Smith did the tribute for Michael Parks a few years ago on Babylon. And he told the story where Michael Parks told him, yeah, John Denver tried to choke me on the set of the Bible. Oh, he tried to kill me on the set of the Bible. What, he worked it too hard? No, he tried to, no, he tried to choke me with his own bare hands. And he tried to drown me. And he was like, wait, holy shit. Yeah, movies were tougher back then. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. Like that moment where you hear those. Oh God! No, one of my, and again, one of my other favorite things about the Good Exorcist was I loved how I loved the creature designs and like obviously like again back to the wall. Only two weeks to do this. Did you have a set amount of you knew you needed this many um, uh, creature attacks and you needed to come up with things that quick, or did you have were these ideas you already had rattling around your brain anyway? Dude, I literally just looked around the room. I was just like, I've got a Bible, Bible monster. My wife's got a teddy bear, teddy bear monster. Got a record I, player, record player. Telephone, telephone monster. Like I, the telephone was a little different because the telephone was sort of a reference to a couple of different movies. Cause you see that classic red phone in some movies. And I always was like, man, why did people love that red phone? I guess it's cause it's an emergency thing. But to me, it just struck me as the devil's phone. So I just wrote that in. That's kind of an idea I've had for a long time. But the demon attacks, I basically just wanted to write this movie as a series of fun, short films that then I would tie together with the moments in between. And as we wrote, we found a lot of heart. We found some things with the characters I kind of didn't even expect. But we also sort of adapted as we went. You know how uh, Father Gill is always drinking the holy water out of the flask? Yeah. Originally, the Bible monster was in the script was killed by throwing that flask in the air and shooting it. And then the holy water sprayed out all over the Bible and then it lit on fire. I just couldn't figure out quickly how to do that and not make it look crappy. Like if I was at home, I would like 
actually throw it in the air and shoot it. Like I would just take it in the, in the backyard at my dad's house and, and shoot the flask to make it look cool or shoot and then cut to a wide shot where I shoot, you know, something filled with water and show the water spraying over or even fill a balloon with something at like a, like a small explosive and blowing it up with water in it. Like I would do something like that, but because of the restrictions of the reality show, I couldn't get away with those kind of risky things. Like they, I would have to have an EMT. I would have to get a stunt coordinator on. I would have to actually figure out how to do it. And I was just like, that's a lot of work and planning. Instead, what if I just use this crucifix that Robert had up at the house that we were staying at and I have him stab it, have Father Gill stab at the Bible with the crucifix instead. It just seemed easier and part of it was just like finding ways to make it easy and then make it look good um i got bronchitis really bad while we were filming and so the the scene with the with the telephone attack i was originally going to make that way more like crazy like i was going to do a lot of cool effects of having the bible or the, the telephone like on a string running up daniel's leg and then do like cool things where it like popped over his shoulder very like uh, evil dead style. I wanted that tele. I just didn't have the energy to really put it into there. So then I just went thing where it cuts like crappy foot or like grainy footage and jumps around. And we just kind of sped that moment up. Um, but what was I saying? I got off track. No, you're talking, uh, about but the, anyway, the, the, but the, the creature effects. Yeah, I just wrote it as like a series of short films. And I, my, I used my wife's teddy bear. I used the Bible. And, we, and then I found at the dollar store this little black journal that I used because I didn't want to actually like destroy that Bible just in case I had to use it more in the movie. So I, not that I wouldn't destroy a Bible for the movie, but I just didn't, I didn't know if I needed it more as we were filming. So then we got these ping pong balls that we made eyes for. And all I used those ping pong balls that, for every monster in the movie we just they all have ping pong ball eyes this they, died for that that was great yeah because if we had them and i'm like well we need something that ties abaddon to each of these things so i just use the same eyeballs in all of them um the only regret i have is not using those ping pong ball eyes on the record player oh I, for some reason it, it just never was there but you know it still works no one has called it out really but no i think it's creepy actually that works no, I liked how the record player was just... No, the running gag I love is every time he destroys something, the lady of the house is always like, Bible! Yeah, exactly. Every time. Um, oh God, yeah, was... the record player, interesting fact that I don't know if I've ever told anyone. I can, I can give some, some weird uh, behind the scenes. In the background, while the Bible is... Uh, or while the record player is all evil, my friend was in... Um, South Korea. He was, he's the guy who did the score. His name's Curtis. He's amazing. Um, he sent me audio of his neighbor, like screaming bloody murder, like these awful screams. And we, he has no idea why, no idea what was going on. Just these awful screams. And he recorded it on his phone and he sent it to me. And then the day before, and I put that in the background. So in the background during that record player, those screams are like vaguely heard in the background. And I actually, uh, when I told, I've told the story before, I have to hunt down where it is. But when I, when I first got sent to Rebel Without a Crew, the day I arrived, they put me in a, 
uh, motel and it was like the shadiest motel. They had no idea. It wasn't their fault. Like we talked about this later, but they accidentally put me in like the shadiest motel ever. So bad that I was laying down to go to sleep and outside the window, I heard someone smashing bottles and then someone yelled, knock it off. They're going to, or they're going to call the cops. And then the person smashing the bottles screamed back. They aren't called or the cops came last night. They're not coming again tonight. And I was like, Oh my God. Um, but in the, uh, in the hotel room, the toilet would like make this really awful sound every like 20 minutes or so. It would just go like, so I recorded that and I put it in the background during the record player scene as well. <laughs> so the record player is just a series of sound effects that I randomly had laying around and I just put it in the background and I think it sounds really cool. Life just throws you stuff sometimes. So the final last, uh, the final good exorcist question I have, um, obviously the ending of the film kind of, it sets up for a potential continuation to see more adventures of father Gill and his associates. So Oh, is there room for, I understand that there might be a comic book in the future or something of the like, but is there more, is there more uh, room for potential follow-ups with Father Gill in the future? Oh yeah, the comic, I'm working on three comic books right now, um, like 22 page, normal like comics that are just sort of the early adventures of Father Gill, those things we talked about before. Like, I wanna see what the demon that pees bees is. Like that just always made me laugh always struck me as like the most interesting throwaway thing to say have you ever seen a demon pbs like of course no one's seen a demon pbs only one person has ever seen a demon pbs and that's you father Gill. but i want to see what that story is so i'm doing a comic about the demon that pees bees and i'm doing a there's i wrote one about a, a refrigerator monster or like these, this demon that like takes over a fridge um so i'm, I'm doing those like early adventures of father gill um and then i also want to do like a a three issue series that's the stuff that didn't make it into the good exorcist the things i had to cut because of the show and do the original uh script took place in a bed and breakfast so i want to kind of rethink the original original script that i didn't necessarily write I mean, I wrote it for $7,000, but the things that I didn't cut based on objects I got and things I changed, um, you know, like the character of Stanley kind of shifted and became more of a man-child. Originally, he was more of like a, a frump, like a nasty, depressed, frumpy character. So I, I kind of changed that up. Um, so anyway, I want to do that as like a, a trade paperback, three issues as well. But then the sequel I'm writing right now, it's called Father Gill and the Daughters of Lilith. And it's sort of about the backstory of Maria and what her character, it, it, I, there's a lot more to Maria that we don't see. I mean, you feel it. I feel it when I watch the movie. I'm like, I want to know more about Maria. What the hell? We, I get that she gets, she's what in hell and she's possessed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, so I'm writing this thing about the, it's essentially a movie about witches in the Bible. That's sort of always been interesting to me. So it's Father Gill and the Daughters of Lilith. Um, Fantastic, actually. Yeah, and it's, I think, you know, it's, there's something to be said about the, the shift in culture and like feminism and, and women in like film. I have something very important to say about that. And I'm not a woman in film, but I can do my part to like, 
allow that to be shown, give people jobs, whatever. So I'm specifically writing it for that. And I, there's a big part of it that um, I, there's a very important story there. So Father Gill and the Daughters of Lilith is the, is the sequel I'm writing right now. And then I have an outline for a third that I would love to do called um, Father Gill Goes to Hell Again, which is crazy. It's awesome. Well, no, no, sorry. It's called St. Gill Goes to Hell Again. Um, but yeah, so. Branding. Yeah, no, that's that is fantastic. So obviously, Good Exorcist is available right now on Amazon Prime and Troma. Now you got the Lloyd Kaufman seal of approval, which is always- Dude, Lloyd has been awesome. And you asked earlier about influences and later in life, um, I was a huge Troma fan for forever. I've always been a huge Troma fan. But later in life, I found these uh, documentaries that they did about the Troma movies. There's like yeah. Farts of Darkness. Uh, there's yeah oh that's my favorite one poultry emotion is so good um so i uh and then you know he has his whole make your own damn movie series and stuff like that and that stuff has been so inspirational and then lloyd has become a friend like lloyd and i chat on instagram and you know uh we did a pot we we podcast together every now and again and he's just become a really important person in my life and so being a part of trauma and trauma now and having the good exorcist on there is just huge for me no i can i can understand and even slightly relate i just filmed a lloyd was nice enough to do a i got to go to trauma hq i live here in new york i got to go to long island city and film the intro i'm doing a documentary about zach amico he's a, a fellow trauma employee he uh, he's in shakes he's in uh return to return to newcomb high part one and two and he's in shakespeare shitstorm which will be coming out soon and I'm, oh yeah i I can't wait for Shakespeare's shitstorm. I have like a two minute animated sequence in it or a minute and a half long animated sequence in it that I I can't wait for people to see. It's... Oh, dude. No, they were showing me a preview of it at the studio and I, I didn't get to see that part, but hope they're going to send me more stuff to help me fill out the film. So I'm definitely going to, I can't wait to see what you did for that. But no, Lloyd was nice enough to do an intro for me. He's just the nicest down to earth old jewish man and yeah. i love him so much no but that was that was a great experience meeting lloyd and i'm glad that you also have that experience too so check that out on trauma now and amazon now for the main event obviously this is one of the big ones i just wanted to stash this at the end so people were prepared for it now i'm about to get into questions regarding Greywood's plot now i gotta warn you guys if you haven't seen it yet I am about to spoil the shit out of this movie because I want to ask a lot of questions about it. So if you want to watch it, you got to go to the Flush Studios Patreon, ple pledge to his page, and it'll be it'll be the first thing they see. It'll be tabbed on the top, right? Yeah, it's like pinned. It's the first pinned post. And uh, the other thing I will say is, I mean, that'd be awesome. It's only a dollar to subscribe to the Flush Studios Patreon. So you can see the movie for a buck. It's really not that much. But I also understand that in this time of quarantine, people don't want to subscribe to stuff. People are, you know, money is tight for a lot of people right now and they're losing their jobs. If you are, feel free to reach out to me. I just want people to see this weird little movie. So don't be afraid to DM me and, you know, I'll send you a screener. And, you know, all I ask is that you pay it forward to someone else, help someone else with something or subscribe to the Patreon in the future when you can or buy a t-shirt if I put out a t-shirt for Greywoods, if you dig the movie, whatever. Just, I just want people to see it. I'll also say, I personally don't, I understand that it has a that Greywoods plot has a crazy twist in it, but I do also think that it's a movie that you kind of have to see to even get spoiled. So if you want to continue listening to the podcast, it's not going, there's nothing I can say that will explain the vibe of how this movie plays 
it's something you just have to gotta, see to understand. You know, it's got to experience, man. You just have to. So with all of that being said, spoilers. Here we go. Now, this not, this not only seems like your most labor-intensive movie, it seems like an amalgam of a lot of different things. The, you, in a, you were nice enough to respond to me on Twitter when I finished the movie, and I said, it seems like you, uh, seems like you got a lot of Dr. Moreau influence in there, and you, and oh, yeah. you quickly agreed. So, obviously, Moreau was an inspiration. You mentioned Tusk before. That must have been an inspiration. So, what, where did Greywood's plot really come from? So Greywood's plot came from this idea. Well, it really came from this idea that I want to go in the woods with my friends and film a movie. Like that was it. It was just this like, what's my version of Blair Witch? What's my version of Creep? What's my version of Baghead? Like, what could I do? And I always love body horror movies. And, and, and the, the truth is, universal monster movies, things like the, and things like the original Fly, The Fly, and the remake of The Fly, for that matter, those kind of movies influenced so much body horror that you can point to, you know, Island of Dr. Moreau or Tusk or whatever, but those movies were influenced by all of the, the stuff that came before. And so in reality, I was just like, okay, I'm going to take something that is all of my influences and throw it into one movie. I'm just going to like wear my heart on my sleeve. I mean, there's even a Beetlejuice joke in the movie. He makes like early on, the, one of the first lines of the movie is, Oh shit, that's a Beetle, that's from Beetlejuice, isn't it? And that like um that this movie was just like me putting myself as out there as I could. It's it's super super uh personal to me. Like everything in this movie is crazy personal and there's Keith and Daniel, the dude who play the dudes who play Doug and Miles are my they're the kids I grew up making movies with. Like they're my best friends since I was, I met Keith when I was 13 days old. Like we've been best friends our entire lives. Daniel and I met in kindergarten. We made, we have movies, like we have video of movies we were making when we were seven, literally seven. And so this was our, and you see it in the movie at the end of the movie, there's like clip, there's like these little clips and that's Keith and I as kids. Um, so this was sort of a movie about, the divorce of an important friendship. We never had that, but there is this element of that to it. So when I started writing it, I'm like, I, you see a lot of movies where people start out as friends and then they have their breakup moment, but then they get back together. Or they, there's the, a movie, you know, there's the movies where people start out as enemies and then you see them become friends, Tommy boy, you know, that sort of like mentality. And I wanted to do the opposite. I wanted to show... I'm, I come from, uh, my parents got divorced when I was like 10. And I, that relationship to me is, has always been like, how can a friendship like that fall apart? So I really wanted that to be the, the crux of this. It's sort of a divorce movie in many ways of a relationship. And I, I, I leaned into that really, really hard. But then it's also kind of about how life just shifts that element of like, and I'm, I'm sort of pontificating deep about a movie about a guy who turns another guy into a dog, man. Like it's, it's That's... don't. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about all these deeper themes here. It is, it is what you said. No, but that's what's kind of great about it. You can look at it in two ways. You can look at it as this deep introspective, like uh, gore film about like a guy who's kind of, what's he going to go with? He's going to go with his passion and his art, or is he going to go with his, 
security and his friendships. Like that's kind of, that's what I gleaned from it anyway. I don't know if that's what you necessarily intended, but, but you, on the other, on, on the flip, you can also look at it. Oh, it's a movie about a crazy fucker who turns another guy into a it's, dog. It's a cheesy black and white B movie about, th- and that's what I liked about the old movies. Like watching stuff like Frankenstein, you know, Frankenstein is my favorite universal monster and watching Frankenstein it's you can watch it and be like it's a movie about a guy who brings people back from the dead but it's so much deeper than that when you really think about it like the heart and the humanity and the darkness and like why would someone want to do this why would someone be bringing some people back from the dead or attempting to or make this monster and stuff like that and so to me it was it was essentially trying to build on who is dr frankenstein and that's really what the movie becomes. Like, who is Doug? Why is he there? Now, he's not the lead of the movie, but he's the one that you're like, you sit there just going like, why? Why is he there? And I learned that from The Good Exorcist. Everyone loves Father Gill, but no one's, not a lot of people are going like, why is Father Gill? They're going, why is Maria? Why is Stanley? Why are the side characters that way? So when we went back to, to doing Grey Woods, I was like, okay, we got to really figure out what makes Doug tick. Like, what little beats can we put in and how can we make the audience go, God, I just want to see more. So that when it gets to the point where Doug is doing this fucked up stuff, you're like, you just want to watch it. You just want to continue to see more of Doug. And when Doug gives a fucking three minute long monologue about his father and like being raised, doing these experiments and how he just doesn't want to be forgotten. And like, he's almost crying, telling the story. You're, you're listening for three he's minutes. He's regaling this narrative to someone who's like in bandages, bleeding, to- <laughs> <laughs> laying on a tide to a table, no, shivering. No, it reminds me again. There's the Tusk influence because it's like it reminds me of the scene in Tusk where it's so good, where like Michael Parks, he's he's giving this sad soliloquy about like human nature to Justin Long, who's stuck in this walrus suit. Yeah, Justin can't make like heads or tails of what the fuck he's saying, but he's confused. And that was super influential to me because I was the opposite. I I watched it the opposite where I'm like, if I'm in Justin's shoes, I'm like, I'd be like listening to this guy. Yes, I'd be terrified. But what else am I? I'm stuck there. I'm chained up. I would be like, why am I here? What is going on? Like, I can't change it. I'm in this suit. I'm, I become this walrus thing. I wouldn't be, you know, there's that moment where uh, Parks is laying on Justin singing the song and he starts bellowing like a, like a walrus. walrus. That moment was like huge to me. That was this movie. I wanted this movie to be just a constant song to Dom and see why is he bellowing? I didn't know why Justin was bellowing. I wanted to show why I'm bellowing because I've become the monster that I always was craving finding, always wanted to to be. And that's what this was. This was why do you become the monster that you are? And of course, that monster ends up being, as he is lovingly called in the credits, Dog Boy. Dog Boy. Yeah. I love. And I loved the, you posted this on Twitter. I love the concept art for the fine one of the one of the penultimate shots of the movie where they're on the VHS tape together. Yeah, the video. I love that. But it's just it's so it's weirdly sad, but it's so comical too. And I absolutely love. 
I love how the final shot of the film is, uh, hey, you know what? It's a story about a man and his dog. It is, yes. No, when you break it down, it literally, I had to rewatch the ending like two times to really kind of understand it. And like when I, I noticed the ending shot, it's his, he's sticking his head out the car window. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with the dog with during the summer and i'm like oh this is a story this is a story about friendship and who's man's best friend more than a dog yeah and there was it is it's a story about friendship literally that is like that was our tagline for the movie was it's a story about friendship because it is it's about dom and miles and their friendship and then the the budding relationship between doug and his his new good boy yeah. and my my dream project would be I this will never in a million years happen. No one is ever gonna fund this movie. But I would love to tell the second half of the Frankenstein movie where the 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 villagers find out about Greywood's plot, you know, and we're seeing the the people find out, the world finds out about this and goes into Greywood's plot and tries to to stop him, but he's made an army of creatures. And yeah. Hmm. That brings it, I, we'll talk about in a second. I, before I forget this question, I'd be pissed at myself if I didn't ask this. One of my favorite sequences in the movie is when Miles is running through the woods and he's seeing just this like collage all over the forest of just people like Cronenberg together and like melding into each other and into the ground. And like there's this one person that's like just a torso and there's like one there's like a bush that's just like a family with heads coming out yeah the 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 bush the bush with the little white flowers that's daniel's wife and and uh like he was like one year old at the time one year old baby <laughs> yes oh my god that's incredible i love that so you um, did mention you did mention uh on twitter when we were discussing that it, Greywood's Providence, I believe you call it. That's the tentative idea for a follow-up, and you people find out that that would be that would be the plot. Yeah, finding out about it and going in deep on this plot. So, like, can you give me a little bit more of a tease as to what that potential follow-up would be if it ever happened? I, you know, it's it, the concept is so strange that I just in my head I'm like, no one is ever gonna make this movie for, with me. I don't know if I just do it or if it, what it. I don't even really know what it is. It's just that second half where they're, you know, they're burning down Greywood's plot basically, and what do they do? And it just be that the reason why this popped into my head is because I could just picture these emotional moments between. Dom and Doug where they're like trying to get away a man and his dog on the run and I to me that's like I want to have that moment where you know like the dog is dying in Doug's arms and we're seeing this relationship as you know he's like like not old yeller because he doesn't have to put the dog down but imagine like the dog the it's like a Marley and me moment. Yeah, the Marley and me moment. You know, they say like the worst thing you can do in a movie is to kill the dog. Like I want to kill the dog in the most. Kill as many people as you want. Murder as many people. Like throw children off of cliffs or something. But if you hurt an animal, that's the worst thing you can do. Just imagine the scene of me and the dog man mask dying as Daniel cries and watch the audience start to sob with us i would that is like the ultimate like if i can make that happen i can die happy like that yeah. would be the craziest moment of my life because it's the stupidest idea this whole thing started as like what we made this fucked up movie dog boy on a table 
Like that's that's where it came from. So to be able to like, yeah, pull, pull this, be the puppet master pulling the strings of the audience where they are so invested that they're just going like, oh God, he's dying. I would love that. But uh, who knows if that'll ever, I think if, I ha- if I'm going to make it, I have to just make it myself and go for it because no one's ever going to be like, I want to see that. I do. I, I pay, I pay fucking, I'd pay $14.95 to see that, man. That's fucking dope. I love, no, but like, really, it is like the third act of Grey Woods where like just everything, it becomes clear to me like what kind of movie this is. It's, it's not, I give you credit like this. You're, you're, you have that line in there about breadcrumbs and like the whole movie is breadcrumbs. It's just kind of, okay, where are we going with this? It's like, it starts off like, like uh, it starts off like slacker and clerks with these two dudes just shooting the shit and having dialogue about a broken Game Boy. Then around Act Two, it becomes like wilderness buddy buddy movie. And then by third act, it takes just a hard left turn into fucking Tusk Town. And that's yeah. when I was like, oh, this is where we're going with it. Like the scene where he's just like, <laughs> no, like it really all starts getting real to me. That scene where he's like, this might pinch a little, and like the blood. Oh just, yeah, that's my favorite. Other than the ending shot with your head out the window where the blood starts coming down your face. Like, that's my favorite shot. I love that. Yeah, that was a fun shot to do, too. We, we did a, quite a few takes of that and figured it out, and that was the shot that I always saw. Like, when I first came up with the idea, I'm like, I want to lean into the surgery and do body horror, but without being um, nasty. Like, I like, I do like nasty body horror, but I didn't want this to feel like as you were watching it like human centipede or something like that i wanted it to feel like i could show it to my mom and she'd be like well i don't like it but at least you thought about your shots and it's pretty to look at like um so that shot i always had this idea for an upside down shot where he's draining the blood but draining the blood from his face would be like how would you do that in some basement weird you know, laboratory. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So I was like, well, what if the worst way to do that, to drain the blood is literally just let it pour out onto the floor. And I'm like, well, it wouldn't just pour out. It would just pool up. So he would have to lean his head back and have it pour down his face. So I just kind of, I ran with that. And I always wanted to see on the big screen, my face with blood pouring down it. So I did it like 10 times. Like I did that shot. I did it once. In fact, you could see on my Patreon somewhere, but I did, uh, a test run with my wife and tried it multiple different ways and had her pour the blood down my face. And she just waterboarded me with it. I couldn't breathe. I was like, and she's just poor. I'm like, who has that much blood in their upper lip? Like no one, but uh, yeah, but the, um, so when we did it, we tried to find a way. So what we actually did was took a, I think we took a baggie and we actually like cut the baggie of, of blood and then it kind of like poured out naturally the way it would cut down. And then it just did this really cool thing where it kind of like parted. Yeah, it parted perfectly around my nose and my eyes and didn't hit my eyes. So you could still see my eyes. It did hit my eyes eventually. And you could see in the movie, like all of those shots where it's in my eye as I'm wearing a contact that's just filled with blood. And oh, it was that hurt like crazy and didn't want to come out. It was terrible, but it, awesome. It looks cool. So I'm happy with I've it. I've heard stories about like how when filming Clockwork Orange, Malcolm McDowell's eye got all fucked up by the 
by the by the by the eye clamp thing. So that's yeah. your that's your equivalent to that moment. It very much it was, and a lot of the reason why I wanted to act in this movie and do a lot of the stuff was to see what it feels like to be put in those positions. Because I was like, well, if I'm going to continue to make movies, I'm going to have to ask people to do some fucked up stuff. So I want to know what it's like to be asked to be naked out in the woods. So like the the Bat Boy in the movie, there's a, there's another character called the Bat Boy. You only see it for like a second which was a weird reference to an old, I mean, not intentionally necessarily, but it, I kind of realized it's, an, it's a, a reference to an old Looney Tunes where there's a Bugs Bunny cartoon where he's playing baseball. And at one point he goes, hey, Bat Boy. And a, a, literally a, a boy with bat wings flies out carrying a bat and gives it to Bugs. And then Bugs, and it, this wasn't like intentional. I wasn't like, I want to do a reference to that. But then my son got really into Looney Tunes and I was watching it and I was like, oh shit, that's where in my head it came from. Like it was an unintentional back of the brain influence, but it totally was because I used to watch that cartoon all the time. Like every day I would watch, I had a tape of Looney Tunes and that was one of the Looney Tunes on that tape. And so that's where the Bat Boy came from. And I'm sure it was when Daniel started using the bat in the movie, because we shot that stuff before, I was like, bat, what if we did a Bat Boy? And it just popped into my head. Um, so that bat boy was me naked in my sister's backyard with a, with a bat mask on that we kind of like made out of a different mask and put some weird eyes on it and stuff like that. No, you're and then great. Like it comes out in the final cut, it comes out so good. Like when it's like in fog and in shadow and like just miles is like, what the fuck? Yeah. And I love that moment he too. He sell, I saw this before. He sells it so good. He sells it so good. Like, no, that scene where he's like fucking going through this this collage of madness in the forest trying to find you. It's so it's it's so creepy, but it's so funny at the same time, too. It's and that's what I wanted because I was like, we need to lend brevity to the surgery happening. Yeah. And I was like, how do we make something that people can kind of chuckle at, but also doesn't completely take them out of the woods? So we I was just like, well, what if we just jump back and forth with this living forest? And have fun with it. And um, so I, for my birthday, I actually, instead of having like a birthday party, I posted on Facebook to all my friends. And I'm like, hey, I'm throwing a birthday party in my sister's backyard. Don't buy me gifts. Don't buy me booze. Don't bring anything. Just go to the Halloween shop and buy yourself some monster makeup. Or if you have monster makeup, turn yourself into a zombie and come to my party and we'll film you for the movie. So that's all just people who came to my birthday party dressed up like zombies. And I found ways to work them into the woods. <laughs> you get them drunk afterwards? Oh, of course. Okay. Oh, and during. We were all drunk. It was still my birthday party. So we were all just drunk filming this crazy I've, shit. <laughs> I've always been a proponent that if you can, if you promise people enough booze, you can get them to do anything. <laughs> Dude, Keith, Daniel, and Nathan Strauss. Nathan Strauss, who plays the, uh, we call him, I think in, this, in the credits, he's called Igor. But we called him the fly guy as well, like whatever his name was. He kind of just became the Igor of the movie unintentionally. He's great. Um, which just started as he we were filming he was my he just came when we started filming he just came out and started filming with us and then he became my uh, assistant director like he did everything he made the dog boy mask like we didn't hire a special effects person to do that strauss and i just made that ourselves we just found a day and cast my face and then he looked up youtube on how to make monster masks and we just figured out how to do it and made it ourselves it cost us a couple hundred bucks you know, in supplies to make it and went with it. I, the most expensive thing of the movie was honestly the booze. Like, cause I bought, brought booze every time we 
went to set. So I had to buy beer and, you know, whiskey every time. And cause Daniel drinks like whiskey Cokes and stuff like that. So every time we went, I had to bring booze and we all just drank and made this crazy movie. Um, but, uh, Strauss who became my right hand man, he, he plays the fly guy. He just like figured everything out. He just went for it and, and learned he wasn't a filmmaker, didn't do anything. And he became like a pivotal character to the movie being the fly dude. So that's sort of the, if you got booze, if you got friends, you can make a movie. That's, that's a really good moral, honestly. So we're just about to wrap this up, obviously. But one more question about Greywoods before we do. Um, when it comes to the film as a whole, like, what would you describe as the best environment to watch that movie? And would you say like a dark room with the lights turned out, just you? Or would you say like with some friends and some drinks? What would you say is the best environment for Greywoods plot? Greywoods is a weird one because I think it can kind of work anywhere. I think, honestly, so The Good Exorcist, I've always been a proponent of. It's like the perfect Sunday afternoon movie as you crack your first beer. Like, it's a movie, if you're going into Sunday night and you're going to be like, hey, I've got this awesome horror movie I'm going to watch, but I need something to just chill out with before, The Good Exorcist. That is, that's the jam for that. Or if you're throwing a Halloween party and everyone is just like going to chill beforehand and bullshit, The Good Exorcist is a perfect bullshit while you watch it movie. The best review I ever got of The Good Exorcist was... It's like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 movie, except for the filmmakers are in on the joke. And yeah. that's like exactly what we were doing. I'm a huge Mystery Science Theater fan. Like that's what I watch. On a Sunday night, I, there's nothing better for me than to put on Final Sacrifice or Mano's Hands of Fate or like any of them. I love them all. So- um, Pod People's a good one. Pod People's a good oh, one. Oh, Pod People's amazing. Like those movies are, th those crappy movies are more influential on my crappy movies than a lot of movies that we talked about before. Like hugely influential. And so I, um, so I think The Good Exorcist is best watched like with people chilling out or like if you, in the summer, if you want to throw a movie on in the backyard with a projector, oh, The Good Exorcist is perfect for that. But Greywood's plot I think is a good- if you sit down by yourself and watch it, I think you'll have a different response than if you watch it in a theater full of people, which is also amazing. Like I, I saw it at uh, Twin Cities Film Festival. It screened there before all of the film festivals got canceled. And I, which sucks. Like we had a couple that we were going to be going to that fell through and it just, it, whatever, it is what it is. But watching it at, at uh, Twin Cities Film Festival, everyone went in thinking, oh my God, we're going to watch this fucked up horror movie. And then the movie starts and they start laughing and they're like, oh, this is fun. And then as it gets to the fucked up stuff, you, you could hear a fucking pin drop and it, the breath left the audience. And I was like, oh my God, I pulled it off. Like I did exactly what I wanted to do. Everyone was holding their breath going, oh, it is a horror movie. I didn't want this, but I do. And I want to watch this. And they all loved it. It was awesome. So I think the movie works with an audience, works with some friends and beers, but it also works as a solo movie. If you just want to like, if you want to put something on and just have a moment where you're like really thinking about something, it works for that too. I think it works in all scenarios. No, it's not like I thoroughly, I thoroughly recommend both, especially Greywood's plot. And that just about brings us down to it. So I guess the final thing to ask would be obviously a uh, good exorcist is in the can that's available for everyone to see Greywood's plot. You're 
you know, still kind of shopping that around, still getting everything done on that end. And uh, as far as Scumbag, you're right in the middle of production on that. So well, as soon as Scumbag is in your rear views, what's, uh, what's next? What's next for Plush Studios? What's next? Yeah. Content-wise. I'm like one of those insane people who has 3,000 ideas, but I somehow can like also focus on one. So I, I have both of those. So Daniel and I, I literally this morning, just this morning, sent Daniel an idea for a short film that I'm really excited about. So I think when this is all over, one of the things we've talked about is we've made these features. We kind of have our trilogy of no budget movies, and it might be time to try to uh, work with some some people and do something a little bigger. So I think we're going to try to do some short films that are specifically made for specific film festivals, whether we get in or not, who knows. But I think if we have the focus of going like, we want this one to play at South by Southwest. We want this one to play at, you know, a horror film festival. We have more a chance of actually getting in and doing some bigger festival circuits. So we're, we're writing some short films um, a couple of them are actually shorts based on features that we wrote. One is called The House That Trembles in the Night. That was sort of my take on, it's sort of poltergeist, like, but with a, like a goosebumpsy twist. It's sort of, it's like a PG goosebumps horror movie that kids can watch. Um, and it's, I sort of wrote that based on the fact that I'd like my son to try acting in something so i wrote it for him as a he's not the main role but he's sort of the they're here type performance he's sort of that that beat um and then i'm also working on a documentary called don't blink that i'm putting out as little episodes uh 12 little episodes about making the good exorcist but then when that's all when the 12 are done i'm going to try to cut it into like a feature length documentary of making the good exorcist um and then I started a long time ago, I started this found footage series. Uh, at the time, it was called My Home Movies or something like that. And it was literally just home movies that I had made, but then I put fucked up stuff in them and sort of made it like this weird monster movie. And I had put it out as a web series, but then I took it down and it, it never got finished. It was just like maybe five or six of them. And now I kind of want to do it as like a found footage uh, trauma movie. So it, it starts out and it's all my family. It's all like just family footage, but then it's going to go in a weird direction. So that changed to being called, I'd call it Trouble Comes. If anyone can get that reference, what Trouble Comes is, you'll figure out what the movie is about. And I think it's going to be awesome. It's a nice little counterpart to The Good Exorcist in a way. It's, it's very different, but it, it plays on some, it plays on a, on a story that people know. Um, and then Daniel and I are just writing, writing, writing. I talked about the Good Exorcist comics and the Good Exorcist sequels. And we have a couple other features in the works. I wrote a feature called, or I'm writing a feature called Abscess that I'm writing for one of the other filmmakers from Rebel Without a Crew. Um, that's about a woman who wakes up on Christmas Eve and has to go to work and has an abscess tooth. And... Uh, Obviously, she can't get anyone to fix her abscess tooth because dentists aren't open. And I've heard all these horror stories about people who can't, who have tooth pain and the dentists aren't open because of the holidays and even emergency dentists aren't available. So they just have to deal with tooth pain. And I'm like, that sounds like the most painful movie ever. So I'm essentially writing the most painful movie ever, hopefully. Oh, God, um, someone, who's yeah. like had, someone who's had teeth trouble, that's, that's like my nightmare to me, honestly. Like, no, you, you've hit, if you do that, you'll have hit two of my biggest fears 
in like two films Sur- like in- invasive surgery and dental shit that's we were so close we're back yeah no it's like no that's no you've hit both of my fears in one movie it's like teeth stuff and invasive surgery over in Greywood's plot yeah, man. And there was originally a scene in Greywood's plot that had more these you see teeth getting pulled a little bit. There's originally a scene where uh Greywood's was filing my teeth and I showed it to some people and they would like gag through it. They couldn't watch it. We had used soap, so I bought soap and put it on my teeth so you could actually see the like teeth grinding and chipping away and people are just like I can't oh my god, that it was too much. So I had to find a happy medium of too much and just enough. Teeth pulling fine like because he's out he's unconscious it's okay seeing a file moving you kind of could be like nah but is he filing teeth or is he filing down at the the jaw maybe or something else it's you can't really tell what's happening which lets your imagination run but doesn't actually show it but seeing teeth filed down just couldn't people couldn't do it it was too much yeah these are the decisions we must make as artists and these are the decisions that make the difference so Yep. That pretty much does it. Thank you so much for coming on, man. Right on, man. So if where can they find you? Where can they find you on the social? Where can they find you? I'm all over. I'm at Josh Stifter on Twitter and I love Twitter. I'm on it a lot and I feel like it's amazing. And everyone who says they hate Twitter, you're just you're using it wrong, I think. Because I, I feel too. you just gotta yeah, you just gotta ignore the crappy stuff, disconnect from some of the awful stuff, and when the haters pop on and say something crappy, just laugh it off. Because it happens. Um, but who cares? Just, just yeah, move on. They didn't like it. They'll forget about it tomorrow. Um, and I'm on Instagram, at Flush Studios, patreon.com slash Flush Studios. Uh, joshstifter.com has, you could contact me via that. You can contact me on any of the, the social medias. I'm like all over the freaking internet. And so once again, yeah, you can find him on all of that. Check out The Good Exorcist, which is on Amazon Prime. It's on Trump now. You can head to his Patreon for uh, Greywood's plot. As far as Scumbag, where will that be getting? Will that most likely be put on the Patreon when it's finished? Yeah, you can watch the whole process of me making it. I'm, if you're not afraid of I'm, – I'm making it sequentially, so nothing will be spoiled as I go. I'm literally going scene by scene so we can kind of see how – Number one, I think it'll be cool for filmmakers to see how I get better at it as I go. So the movie will actually get better, hopefully, as it progresses. But also, it's just easier for me as the character gets older in this time period. I'm basically playing it out as it's happening. So if I don't film for five days, five days passed since I, since I filmed. So you'll kind of get to see it play out as I, as I play it out. Um, but yeah, you can watch the making of Scumbag on there and then it'll eventually be featured on Patreon for a while and then we'll see. Hopefully it'll get distribution somewhere. But I, you know, distribution these days is such a sloppy mess that even people who are getting on, you, Universal can put out your movie and you won't see a dime. So you, who knows what'll happen a year hey, from now when it releases. It's, a, it's now weirdly a topical story. So we'll see what happens. So check out Scumbag Bomb. Thank you. For- it is. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. No, this was this was a lot of fun. Definitely check out Scumbag. Looking forward to that. Like you said, it's a very topical story, and I'm looking forward to I, how that comes together. The 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 release, the tentative release date I'm hoping for is my birthday, September 13th, 2021. That's like when I'm shooting for a viewing on Patreon and live. I want to do like a birthday event where I 
I play it in my backyard on a projector and everyone can tune in live and watch it and then talk with us and drink and just make my birthday party a big old online affair. That's and, and hopefully people will be good at it. People will hopefully by September 13th, people will be looking back at uh, this and being like, you know what? We got really good at social distancing and partying online and doing that. Let's do it one last time on Josh's birthday and watch his movie and have a, have a good old time. Have a good old time. And this was a good old time. So thank you guys once again for tuning in to another episode of It Came From Queens. We're reminding you one more time, check me out at Falbo underscore Benjamin on Twitter. Follow the official It Came From Queens Facebook page on Facebook. And don't forget to stay safe, wash your goddamn hands, and don't forget, stay weird. I'm Benjamin Falbo, signing out. When you're